In a world where two podcast hosts with the same name have a big conversation about something, is cinema still the best way to watch visual entertainment or has it been taken over by television? Has it died a death like the use of this voice in trailers? Will the Adamsons find the- <laughs> That's fucking brutal on the throat, by the way. <coughs> I've got the Rona. <coughs> Hello and welcome back to episode 11 of the Double Reel Film Podcast. This is the second reel of our monthly magazine-style podcast for film nerds. Hopefully you've caught up with the first reel, had a brief intermission, and refueled ready to take on this mighty second installment of Nerdy Film Chat. If you haven't caught the first reel yet, please do go back to your app and download and listen to it, so you're up to date with all the features we've covered already this month. These include our roundup of news and spotlight on some of the films we watched this month, our classic and recommended feature on Hell or High Water, our hidden gem Dark City, the one that got away about Neil Gaiman's Sandman, and our remake Hate Watch of the new version of Robocop. Now in Real 2, we bring you our big conversation where we tackle a weighty topic and give it a fuller, i.e. longer, discussion. This month, we're looking at whether TV is now better than film as an art form and as the preferred destination for great screen adaptations. Joining me as always for the big conversation is my co-host, James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for the introduction. Happy to be here and um, excited to get into it again. Yeah. So the the kicking off point uh, that inspired me to suggest this for the pod, I think this one was my idea, um, was that our one that got away that we've been, you know, researching and discussing in real one is about a a great story, a great comic book uh, series that they tried to adapt into a film um, and... Uh, and failed because it just wasn't suited to that format. And it's probably not possible to do a story like this in the kind of usual two hours. Um, it also seems like it's much harder to do a story with explicit content and moral gray areas and a nonlinear narrative on a big budget in films anymore. Um, you know, And now Sandman's about to be a TV series on Netflix, which everyone is hopeful is going to be brilliant. And that feels like the rightful home uh, where it's going to get the complex, expensive, ambitious, dark treatment it deserves. And there's been similar cases uh, recently with um, Good Omens, which they tried to film and, and didn't happen. Uh, and now it's a TV series that was very well received. Uh, and His Dark Materials has been very well received as a, as a show, um, whereas the film didn't do very well. So th- this is where I kind of stopped off and said, you know, ha- an odd thing to say for a film podcast, perhaps. Is TV better than film nowadays? Is it actually the deeper, richer format? Is film maybe turning slightly into sort of empty spectacle? Uh, and obviously, it's a little bit provocative to ask that question. And I think James and I remain big fans of film. But we just thought uh, maybe it's time to draw a bit of a line and, and have a look at it, given that we seem to be in something of a golden age of television these days. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree. It's um, I think it, film is starting to be on the downturn. I think because it's I think it's because of cost. Personally, I think the uh, the cinemas don't do themselves any favor by favor. Sorry, by charging you know, exorbitant prices for tickets and then snacks, which I've, I've stopped buying cinema snacks. I'll just, I'll just go to my local Aldi and just buy a bag of popcorn for a quid. I think the actual experience of going to the cinema is kind of lost. It's magical a little bit. I don't know if that's just a, way, a thing of getting old or we're just getting lazier as a society because I'd rather, you know, stay at home, you know, you know, watching something on the couch that you can binge for a few hours rather than the effort of going into town, parking, walking to the cinema, getting your tickets. And, you know, I just think the whole experience is a bit, I don't know, I don't know. Maybe it's just lost its magic or maybe it's just because um, this pandemic has, you know, kind of kicked everyone, you know, into a different way of watching. Yeah. Maybe it's distorted how we feel about these things. We don't know what it's going to be like when things open back up. Right. Yeah, because the amount of TV shows I've watched, like started new shows, rewatched old TV shows and things like that during this pandemic is quite high compared to the actual amount of films that I've watched. Um, I don't even know why that is because it actually takes longer to watch a completed TV series compared to a film. But I do think there's greater character depth, there's greater story explanation, exploration sorry, um, that you can get with a TV show. Like I can name five TV shows that I've watched in the past month and I probably haven't watched five films in the past month. Yeah, um, and, and I guess you, you, an episode of a TV series is more easily digestible. It's designed 
you know, in most cases, I know they drop all the episodes on Netflix or Amazon these days and Apple and, and everything else, but it's still designed to be the kind of show where, you know, you can leave it, you know, a week or more and then go previously on Breaking Bad and, and you can pick it back up. Where yeah. it, is it is it is it the same with the film? Are you breaking the spell a little bit if you stop halfway through? It's I interesting because when you said the thing about the cost, it's really interesting because we're, we're talking, you know, the, the stopping off point for this was a um, – uh, you know, a, a, a film adaptation or attempted film adaptation of a comic book. And one of the most famous kind of uh, sort of haters of his own adaptations is Alan Moore, who was responsible for Watchmen and V for Vendetta and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And he's never really liked any film versions of, 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 his, of his work. And he gave an interview once and he said that when you write a comic book, most of the decisions you make are creative. Yeah. When you're making a film, most of the decisions you make are financial. Um, and he's obviously got a very jaded view of, of films, and he just doesn't see it as a as a worthwhile art form at all. And I, I would hold my hand up and say, well, actually, I think film is a, a worthwhile art form. Um, but you know, we, we have had our own, you know, we have had our own whinges on, you know, whether we think film is as good as it used to be, and that's an easy, you know, thing to say. Um, I mean, one thing I would say is, it, you know, it did used to be very different. I mean, TV was often seen as like a watered down, cheaper, not as high production values. Um, you know, there were exceptions like when um, Spielberg made uh, Duel, his first film originally as a TV movie. And when it turned out as well as it did, they said, well, this is as good as a proper film. Let's release it in the cinema. And there was this much bigger dividing line. You know, people didn't do TV, um, you know, unless they'd maybe fallen on hard times or the film career was kind of over. Um, you know, in the UK, fair enough, you've got great actors and stories on TV like I, Claudius and the Alec Guinness version of Tinker Taylor. But you wouldn't do anything that required a serious budget on TV. It just couldn't happen. And actually, still on Neil Gaiman, who wrote Sandman, he he collaborated on a TV series called Neverwhere. It was made for TV. It wasn't based on any work of his. Uh, this is like 1996, and there were technical and budget limitations that just made it look quite cheesy. I remember reading the book and thinking it was brilliant because it did a novelization of of, of the, the series. And watching the series, it was like, oh, this has been filmed on video. These special effects are crap. And, you know, now you can do much more lavish productions of, of, of these things. You know, Neil Gaiman's American Gods, you know, there are criticisms of how well the second series was done, but no one said the production values weren't good enough. Do you know what I mean? Um, and that seems to be, you know, television now doesn't seem like the poor relation anymore. They seem to have enough money to make a show as good as it needs to be on, you know, wh- whatever whatever the story. I think the where a television show is more advantageous to a film is when there's already source material. So for example, we didn't need a TV series of Inception, just to name one great film. I mean, you could, you could draw it out and have multiple different heists where Leonardo DiCaprio does more than one heist in the film. I know he does that in the film, but it could be a prequel to to all the big Inceptions, you know, to the big Inception in the film or something. I think when it comes to TV shows, I think it comes to preconceptions from the source material. So, that's where I think that's why they did like the Harry Potter series, for example. They kind of not rushed them out, but did them as films because if they'd made if they'd made Harry Potter today, everyone would be asking for a, a TV series. If you know what I mean, because they'd be like, "Well, look at all the stuff you're missing out from the books." That was always criticism. Same with Peter Jackson, who made you know, you know, how, I don't know what the total length of the Lord of the Rings extended edition is. It must be about close to f- thirteen hours. But yeah. Is it four, three? Yeah, definitely. But the um, you know the films, the release versions for the theatrical release versions were you know had to stay under three hours, and there was a lot of debate, wasn't there? You know, basically they cut pretty much the whole Saruman storyline out um, yeah. for you know parts two and three, and Christopher Lee was you know fuming about that. And you don't have to do that on um, on, on film, on, yeah, on television. Think- sorry. That's. I think that's the problem is that we have when, the, for example, Game of Thrones was the biggest show on on Earth and it ended really badly, and that was probably because we already had the preconceptions of the source material where, you know, George R. R. Martin's written these books and they they deviated so much from it. But they, if they tried to do that as a film, they wouldn't have worked because you had yeah, to have yeah. about seventeen films. Yeah, um, I think where we differ, where we enjoy films more is when it's like a kind of standalone story that we don't know anything about. I think, you know, when you have films by Christopher Nolan and Tarantino who do their own thing, they don't do a, they don't do like a remake. They don't do a kind of, they did, obviously Christopher Nolan did a reboot, but they do their own stories. They do, 
films that stand alone in themselves and you don't have any, you know, prior knowledge to all you, what you get from the film is yeah. what you know. Whereas I think people, things like, um, what have I been watching recently? Um, Good Omens, like you mentioned earlier. Good, Good Omens is, there's already a book. Everyone's read the book. Everyone knows the story of the book. So they don't want people to just, you know, just watch a film for two hours and then cut, you know, so much of the story out. Um, and... Either. Well, that's a good that's a good example because we we may well come back into a one that got away on Terry Gilliam's attempt to film Good Omens. Yeah, uh, and you know, without getting too much into that and spoiling the chance to do it on a later podcast, one of the things he said was that it was an absolute nightmare trying to get it down into a uh, a two hour film, and 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 Good Omens is only like two hundred and eighty eight pages, right? It's not a long novel. But the way it was written, you know, Neil Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett packed so much in. It was a beautifully written book that you just couldn't get every, everything in, and they just had so much more room to breathe to kind of do it as a you know, mini series of, 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 you know, I think what the, the Americans would call it, uh, and it really worked. And you know, there's been so many, you know, original like novels from from the uh, from the classic era of like the 19th century classic novel, your Tolstoy, your Dickens, yeah. people like that. They used to publish their novels in episodes. You might get, you know, over the course of like, even up to like two years or even longer, depending on the length of the book, Dickens would give you like a chapter at a time or or an installment at a time over the months. And he wouldn't have finished writing it when his readers were reading, um, you know, part one, you know, so, you know, David Copperfield, his readers are reading and responding to part one in the, in the publications they came out in. He hasn't, he might have a pretty good idea, but he hasn't written the final chapter yet, Yeah, which that, that's, that's exactly what your showrunner of a great TV series is doing. Because yeah, he listens to. Yeah. And he, he may, he may, he may change it based on audience response. He may not, but he's, he's having that relationship with his audience over a sustained period of time. Exactly how, uh, Vince Gilligan did with Breaking Bad. Yeah, um, I think what's what's interesting is that we've always. I think I don't think I've actually ever heard any ever heard someone say that should be made into a film. If you know, what I mean, that's that's probably sounds quite confusing. But I've heard people say films that should be documentaries. So you know, films where Eddie Redmayne's portraying Stephen Hawking because it was awkward and it should have just been a documentary about Stephen Hawking's life because I wasn't very comfortable with a fully abled man pretending to be pretending to have motor mm-hmm. neuron disease. But you always hear about folk. For example, when we watched the World War Z film, and we thought that eh, was all right. You know, they they kind of ended it differently to the books, and they didn't really explore the books. But we both said, if the if the Walking Dead hadn't been a TV show, they should have made World War Z into a TV show. Absolutely, it's, and, it's and I, I think they should have done it anyway. I think they yeah. should have done it anyway. One more zombie show, but a really good one. Why not? Yeah, done properly. <clears throat> no, I mean, obviously, the, I mean, this is what we're setting out, and I mean, I would say there have been classic eras when. Um, you know, people have said, oh, this, you know, we should make a film of this great successful book. I mean, The Godfather is adapted from a novel. Um, and, and broadly speaking, The Godfather Part 2 is, you know, the bits that they couldn't get into Godfather Part 1. Um, and, and that's a, an adaptation of a novel that everyone loved. And LA Confidential, I mean, LA Confidential is really interesting because that's a long novel, right? That's like five or 600 pages. Uh, and it turned into a classic Oscar-winning film. And they had to leave all sorts out. And they, they did an amazing job, actually, of sort of keeping the um, the spirit and, and what the what the book was meant to be about and what the book was saying in the finished product of the film, even though they had to leave whole like subplots and complicated bits out of it. So nowadays, if they were going to do uh, a, an adaptation of James Elroy's L.A. Confidential, uh, that was such a good film with Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce. They'd probably try and do it as a Netflix uh, series now um, or HBO or one of these other ones. And um, not least because, you know, since 1997, it's become increasingly difficult for someone to make a, you know, an expensive film with an R rating or a 15, 18 rating when, you know, everyone wants blockbusters. It's a toughie because I do, I still enjoy the cinema. I don't enjoy it as much as I used to. Um, I don't know if just because my attention span's gone down, but you know, I don't, I don't enjoy like when I went to see um, Avengers at the cinema. Like three hours is just too long for a, a film like that. Um, I don't know. I think 
I'd rather be watching a TV show at home where I can, you know, you know, decide if I want to continue the episode. Because if a film's three and a half hours long, then I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bother, you know, sit through it. If, if there's like if there's a slow if there's a slow bit in the film that's two and a half hours, three hours long, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna continue watching it unless it's excellent. But you know, I I didn't get on with the Irishman on Netflix. I thought it was fucking boring. Didn't yeah. Didn't didn't see the point in it. I thought it was just a bit of a waste of time. Um, and yeah, I, I could have happily done with that. I, I don't think I actually finished the Irishman. Um, yeah, but I mean, I, I think having put the case forward, and I think showing where you know a lot of, a lot of the time now, you know, great series. I mean, uh, you know, seem to be a better option than a film. The Witcher was a really successful Netflix adaptation of a book stroke video game. I, I just can't see that working as well on film. Having said all of that, I will say, first of all, there are still some absolutely great films coming out, and, and some of those are adaptations of other source material. I mean, adapted screenplay is still something that, that you know, that, that gets rewarded at the Oscars. Uh, they made a very good film with David Copperfield recently. Um, you know, so we talk about David Copperfield being better suited to a series. Someone's managed to do it as a film, and there's still an option, I think, for a good adapter, a good filmmaker to... Um, uh, you know, distill some sort of source material down into a film. And I think we talked on, you know, Real One about that there were other reasons for Sandman not working than it just, you know, being better as a film, uh, but better as a TV series than a film. I think some of my favourite films are based on on books. Um, Hitchcock was an absolute master of, of taking a novel or, or a short story and saying, uh, I know what film to make out of this. And it might be one aspect of that film, or it might be certain themes from that book that he's turned into a film. But some of his best films, like, you know, uh, uh, The Birds was based on a book, and he's, he's he was an absolute genius at adapting a film. So I think the great filmmakers, I mean, the best filmmakers, the ones that we wish should get more, um, you know, freedom to make films, um, I think can still make film into a great art form. And I think what I'd argue is it's not film as an art form that's suffering. I think it's the, you know, we always go about, I always moan about the executives in the studio. I think they're the ones who, who hold film back. And I think you can still make absolutely great films. I think we watched One Night in Miami, which is an adaptation of a stage play. So I think it's a question of format. I think a stage play is designed to be a couple of hours long. So a, a film version of that um, can work so long as this, the material can be turned into something cinematic. I think um, I think where you struggle is, for example, Harry Potter's got this huge fan base and, and people going, oh, how come we never got to see that cheeky ghost? Well, there just wasn't room, right? There just wasn't room to do. He was in the video games. Remember, you and I used to play the video games together when you were little. Yeah, there wasn't room for him in the film. Yeah. So I still think that if, you know, I think they should maybe treat it as TV is, a, is I think, very much the equal of film now. I think there's some absolutely amazing stuff on TV. And I think when someone sits down to think about adapting a great story or a great film or a great graphic novel or whatever it is for, for the screen, I think, uh, I think TV has, has to be an option. I think what, what I'd also say is um, I think it comes down partly to format. There's big screen and large screen. And I think there are still things that should be seen on the big screen. And I'm not just talking about big spectacle. I'm talking about a great movie that, you know, fills a, a 60 foot screen with, with a, a powerful story. I, I still don't think there's anything like it. I think, you know, and, and long movies, well, you know, Lawrence of Arabia was like about four hours long. My favorite film is Once Upon a Time in America. That's nearly four hours long. And that, again, that's based on a book. Goodfellas, amazing film based on a book. I think if you can, I think it requires a great filmmaker with a vision to judge correctly, um, you know, what what kind of adaptation needs to be made. And I still think film is right up there. I think what, what I'll also say is I think we can look at some great TV shows and some not so great TV shows. And there are some shortcomings for the t for the TV format as well, I would say. I think it's quite a phenomenon, you know, a phenomenon that, that's well known now. Netflix bloat. I don't know if you've heard of this phrase. Mm, it's no. when people try and stretch a story for a TV show over 12 or 13 episodes because that's the expected length. And they probably had enough story for about eight episodes, right? Um, and it, <clears throat> you, you find yourself spinning through episodes, going, "Nothing happened in that episode." Get to the point, you know. And I, I like it better when you know. And actually, Sky have done this recently, or maybe that you know, Sky Atlantic uh, doing HBO shows like this, um, things like Big Little Lies and The Undoing, where they said this is eight episodes because it's that. That's what we've got. It's going to be. I'd rather do eight brilliant episodes than twelve like mediocre ones. 
But TV drives people to do that. TV networks do funny things like having mid-season cliffhangers. Like I don't know what it's like in other territories. I think most of our viewers are here in the UK. But Walking Dead has eight episodes and then like a two-month gap and then the other eight episodes. And apparently that's a TV scheduling thing. I don't know why they do that. Um, you know, and th- th- there's there's also the problem of if the TV you know network doesn't like a, a show or doesn't think it's doing quite well enough, they'll cancel after a season and people express frustration that, you know, they'll watch a series and get really into it and then find out that it's been cancelled and, yeah. and the story's just stopped in the middle. Um, you know, I, I don't think we should, you know, a, a classic example is Firefly. There's a great show that deserved to have, you know, a number of series and the, and the arc was there and, and didn't get finished. And it's really frustrating when a great show doesn't finish, at least with a film, that the three-act structure forces you to take even an episode in a story, even Empire Strikes Back, right, which is the middle of a trilogy. That's a tremendous film because within the confines of that two-hour running time, they pay off the film, even though there's more story to come. And I I think that's an area where TV is perhaps vulnerable compared to film. I would counter that with there are plenty of films that have tried to have been so confident that it's going to be a success that they've tried to get a sequel and the film's been absolutely garbage and they've cancelled any sequels like yeah. um, his dark materials you just mentioned. The Golden Compass was fucking awful, but they were obviously hinting that they were going to do um, adaptations of fuck what were the what were the subsequent books called the um, the subtle knife and the amber spyglass. Yeah, they were going to do sequels for them, but the films trash, so they didn't make. So it is frustrating. I think I think the difference is. What it boils down to for me is that if I see a shit film that I've spent, well, now that I'm an adult and I don't get student tickets, if I've paid £11 to see a film and it's shit, I'm furious. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to, yeah. you know, if something like recently I've been furious with some of my favourite directors, like Christopher Nolan's not made a good film since 2014. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, if I pay for a lot of money for a film and it's shit, like there's films that I won't go and see in the cinema, you know, I'm not going to go and see. A new, mm-hmm. I'm not going to go see a horror film in the cinema. I'm not going to go and see that. I'm not going to go and see the new Adam Sandler film in the cinema because it won't be funny. Whereas if I stick a if I stick a film on if I if I've got Disney Plus and I didn't like the idea of seeing you know, um, I don't know what's a good example because I like all Marvel films. It was probably a poor choice, but say I didn't like the th- the story arc of Ant Man, which I don't actually. I don't like the Ant Man story. I think they're pretty boring films. I didn't pay ten quid to go to the cinema and see this see the film. Mm-hmm. I can just watch it on Disney Plus from my streaming subscription, which is sixty pounds for the year, and you know if I've watched it at home and I don't if I don't like it, I can turn it off after thirty minutes. Whereas if I've paid eleven eleven quid to go and see a film and it's shit, I feel like I'm a bit more annoyed that this much time and screenwriting that should have gone into this or that did go into it and wasn't done properly, and they've come out with this shit result of a film. I think that makes me more annoyed. Yeah, and a TV show because I feel like TV shows flesh out their story much much better. That's why people were so annoyed at um, Game of Thrones' final season because it was crap, and people knew that they could do better because they had done better. Mm-hmm. But what the, the kind of the this TV show can you know has opportunities to change. Like I've just, I've just watched all of the, uh, Parks and Recreation. Have you ever watched it? Yeah, I love that show. Yeah, so I've watched all of it, and basically in the first season, Leslie Nope is a lot like. Um, not like David Brent, but she's very exuberant and she seems a bit, you know, not hapless, but she's not as useful. Yeah. And then uh, Amy Poehler said to the writers, can we make Leslie Knope actually get stuff done? She's obviously a very enthusiastic um, councilwoman or a member of the um, parks department, but she yeah. gets stuff done. She seems very enthusiastic, whereas in the first thing she seems enthusiastic and her mum kind of looks down on her for being useless and only being a member of the parks and recreation department. But the, that whole story arc where she has seven seasons to go from Leslie Nope, the kind of ditzy character from the first season to, you know, it, it gets a bit ridiculous where she becomes like governor of Illinois and then, you know, the, the first, like, like she becomes president. It's not ridiculous in that sense, but they don't flesh out that bit as much, you know, in the final season, you know, she builds her way up to being councilwoman over six seasons. And then in the final season, she goes to governor and then she goes to this and then she becomes president because they're trying to wrap up the season a bit quicker. But it shows that she can be a competent character. And that's something you can't do in a film. You can't, you simply can't yeah. have that character development over I think there's 125 episodes. They're all 20 minutes long. You can't. You simply can't. Obviously, it's not all about Leslie Knope for every single episode, but she's very. She's obviously the main character in it. You simply can't get that with a TV show. So TV with a with a film. Sorry. So I feel that's yeah, a, and, the advantage. And I know you're coming from. I'd, I'd like to counter that. That because why? Yeah, otherwise, we don't have a, fun, a good conversation, right? But while that's true, 
I would say, for example, that the fact that the entire final season of Game of Thrones was botched, it shows two things. One, there are ways in which making a film gives you a, a sorry, making a TV series gives you this challenge that, you know, it becomes harder and harder to, to make it or they say, oh, we're going to try and um, uh, fit this in in a certain time frame and, and, and all of these things become a challenge. And, and they, they balls up that final series. And I know they could have done better and I still think they could have done, but for whatever reason, when they did make that balls up of the final series, I mean, maybe I need to go back and watch it, but sometimes when, I, when I've seen that happen to a TV series that's gone a bit wrong, it's hard to go back and enjoy the middle part of a series because you know that, it, that the episodes are more connected to each other. And if it doesn't end well or if it gets messed up or it goes downhill, it's kind of like, can you enjoy the, the series when it was good and stop? And do you have closure? Because I would argue that while I think we've we've been pretty kind of vocal about the fact that we didn't like the last three um, Star Wars films, I think, you know, uh, Force Awakens probably seen as more entertaining, but I think it, it, it actually let the side down and caused future problems. Um, that hasn't stopped me going back and watching A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and even Return of the Jedi, even it's not quite as good as the other two, because it feels like even though that's part of a series and even though the story arc, you know, continues, there's something about it being a film that says, no, I, I can stop here. I can enjoy this part of it because it feels like they've brought, they brought it to a close. And, and the fact that subsequent films haven't been very good doesn't spoil my enjoyment as much. I mean, maybe that's just me, but I think if the, the, all the episodes of the series sort of influence each other when it's a TV show, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I uh, I do agree, but I also I think I think we're kind of making similar points, but just in I think we're both clear, I think it's both clear who prefers what. I'm much more of a TV show guy now compared to a film. Not that I don't enjoy films, but I've just I've been really getting into TV shows recently because you know I think people recommend them more. It's not to say that every TV show is perfect. I've watched a couple of rotten um, TV shows recently. Did you watch that Behind Her Eyes? Oh no! To be honest, I heard that the ending was a bit sort of uh, divisive. Well, and reading the summary, I thought I'm probably not going to watch that, so I'm going to read up on what the ending is. And I thought, having read read what the ending is, I'm so glad I didn't watch the yeah, show. Mass, I think I'm fuming I, right now. I, 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 I want to talk about this. But also a massive spoiler because this basically <coughs> reveal the entire story. Yeah, of what spoiler, spoiler alert! Everyone massive spoiler who, who alert! Wants to know the ending, doesn't want to know the ending. Spin on for about yeah. two or three minutes. Yeah, spin on for about yeah two minutes. Basically, what happens is it kind of starts interestingly where there's a there's a um, woman who's a single mum with her son and she works as a as a receptionist or a secretary in a in a psychiatrist's office and she meets this guy on a on a, in a pub who's doing a really awful Scottish accent, by the way. And he <laughs> buys her a drink, and then they're standing outside a pub, which looks like it's on London Bridge, where we've been many times, and he kisses her, and he's like, oh, no, I, uh, I can't do this. And then he goes home to his... He turns out he's married with a wife. And it's all very weird. He's he's basically controlling his wife through medication. They've been married for 10 years since she was 18 because she was sectioned, um, and she's an absolute fruit loop. But it's kind of it seems to be going down the path of you know he's basically controlling his wife and he phones her every like three hours to make sure while while he's at work to make sure she's not doing anything, you know I don't know if it's trying to hint that he's being abusive or he's trying to make sure that yeah. she's not cheating on him and he's like basically controlling her life or he's looking after her because she was sectioned and she was on I think she was on drugs or something I stopped paying attention but basically yeah. it flashes back to her time in the mental hospital where she meets this gay guy and other than that you're thinking hmm where's this going this could maybe be interesting and then they start like intertwining these weird like dreams that they have so her pal in the psychiatric hospital has these um dreams where he's being chased by zombies through a block of flats and it's all about like, your it's your sleep paralysis not your sleep paralysis what is it night terrors yeah, yeah, yeah the back to the main female lead the um i can't remember the character's name or the actress name but she's she's a young black woman and she sometimes wakes up standing up screaming in the middle of nowhere and she's because she's having night terrors and her night terrors that she's in a corridor and she can't find her son and she can't get through any of the doors blah 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 but basically, it seems like she's trying to, you know, everyone's having night terrors and they're trying to figure out, she will trying to figure out how to deal with it. She, she then meets the wife of the guy that she kissed, who she starts having an affair with. So she starts having an affair with the guy while being pals with his wife. So it's a bit like, oh, you know, she's being a bit shady there. And it's kind of, I mean, it's very, 
it's kind of very not chick flicky, but you know, it, it appeals to a certain audience, so to speak. And, yeah, and that, that's not me, but um, it's basically for about four episodes, it's just a lot of shagging. It's just shagging, just shagging. <laughs> it's just you're just watching it, and it's just oh, they're fucking now. Oh, look, they're fucking now. Oh. Oh, the the gay character in the psychiatric hospital sucked off the nurse to get some weed, and they're like, it's basically it's very sexually charged. And then, out, out of nowhere, it turns out the main the main character can can like I don't even I don't even know the right word. She can transmit her aura into um into other people, and it turns out the guy's wife isn't the guy's wife, but it's her gay pal from the psychiatric hospital who managed to transmit his conscience and his soul into his wife's body and his wife is dead in the gay guy's body. <laughs> it's astral projection, isn't it? Astral yeah. projection, that's what it's called. A heap of fucking shite. <laughs> anyway. It reminds me, just as a side, it reminds me of a book that I read that it started out really interesting. Um, it's called The End of Mr. Y and it's about parallel worlds, all the kind of stuff I love. But the mechanism by which the main character enters um, the the secret world and, and finds out all this strange stuff that's going on uh, involves homeopathy. Okay. At which point I just went, ah, oh, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not Bye. going. I'm not going Bye. along with this. Bye bye, driver. Like, you know. Yeah. Basically, what happens is the the gay guy's body is dead, but it's the wife's conscience. So now the gay guy has projected his soul into the wife, and now the wife. <laughs> I'm just remembering why this is funny now. So the wife only likes being done, only likes being shagged up the arse because it's the gay guy. Right? Fucking hell. <laughs> and, and it, just, it didn't make sense to me. Like, basically, it's just the, the guy, the husband, the Scottish guy, is very moody. He's like, I can't keep doing this all the time. This is bad. This has to be the last time. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. And you're thinking, what's wrong with this guy? Why is this guy so moody? Because his wife's pretty hot. And then. What happens is the gay guy then projects his soul into the black woman's body, and then the black woman's soul is now in the woman's body, but the woman's soul's dead from ages ago, so it's the gay soul in the black woman's body, and she's now, the black woman's soul is now in the white woman's body, and then the gay guy controlling the black woman kills the white woman and buries her in the garden somewhere or, you know, disposes of the body. And then the final shot is the Scottish doctor who is absolutely fine with his wife gone, marrying the black woman, but it's still it's still the gay conscience in the woman. So oh, it's yeah. still getting right. So it's all it's a complete mess. So the gay conscience is now I, in the I really hate body. this idea. Right? So it's he's in this the gay guy's mind is in the black woman's body. So the, the funniest thing about it is that he's tried to do this, you know, this has to be the last time. And inevitably he's gonna have to fuck her up the arse again. That's basically <laughs> The fight. That's that's my hot take on it. That's the final, the final scene. And then, like the, the guy, obviously the woman's got her kid. Oh, the the woman's body has the kid, but the woman's soul is now dead. And now the the woman's kid yeah. like says something like, "Oh, I can't wait to go to the beach" or something like that. And then the kid's like, "But you don't like going to the beach, mummy." And then the mum's like, "Oh yeah." And that's the final shot. They just drive off into the sunset. It was a heap of balls. I don't know where I was going with that. I'm just, I'm just you know, retelling. Well, well, well I would, I would it. say it makes the point that if you know, while obviously going to the cinema and and finding out you hate something, and um, uh, I know we, you know, real one includes a discussion of Alex Proyas, who directed Dark City, um, and his film Knowing has one of the worst endings for a film I've ever seen. And um, when you get to the end, you feel like you've wasted your life, two hours of your life waiting for that ending. I think if you've had to waste eight, 10, 20 hours of your life for that ending, I think it's even more infuriating. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are some things about TV series that I think it's worth pointing out. If we are going to kind of show up, you know, compare the two agendas, I think there are some problems. TV shows can often go on too long because when they make a bit of money, they um, they keep dragging it out. And I know TV, you know, film series get dragged on, but you can stop. You can say, I don't like these films anymore, but I'm going to watch the old ones. But things like Pretty Little Liars, where the whole premise of the show was unmasking a certain character, that certain, that gets unmasked at the end of season two. They yeah, drag it out for another five seasons. Times, yeah, because there's, there's multiple. What's the character's name again? A. <clears throat> yeah. When you unmask A, the show's over. Why, why are we still going? Grey's Anatomy is now on season 16. I can't imagine anyone is still watching that out of anything other than habit. Like, 
Um, you know, things like Family Guy and Archer and The Simpsons, they're all like shows that I loved that should have stopped years ago. They're still going on. Is Archer yeah. still going on? Yeah, Archer's <laughs> fucking terrible now. Honestly, it? it feels like the creator is daring the uh, the the, uh, the network to just stop paying him to do it anymore. No, Smallville. Maybe, do you remember maybe. Smallville? Ten seasons for Superman to turn into Superman, even though we all know he's Superman. Well, Fuck that. Archer and he showed me a couple of episodes and I found it quite funny, but I didn't know. First, first five series are brilliant and then it goes downhill and the last series is fucking terrible, honestly. Yeah, um, um, but I think one of the drawbacks... Sorry, mate, go ahead. So the, the point I was just trying to make is that I think it's the appeal with television is, okay, you start a show that's um, seven seasons, 20 episodes. You, I think the prospect of that is quite interesting because getting into a new show, like I really actually, I really enjoyed watching Parks and Rec because I'd watched the first yeah. two seasons and kind of stopped and then getting into it, I really enjoyed it. And once it, I finished it like like last week and I was actually quite sad that it had finished. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. like, what am I going to watch now? Because I actually really enjoyed the way they, they, you know, developed story and like had character arcs and, you know, those relationships with everyone. Um, but at the same, at the same breath, like there's TV shows that I've watched and thought, eh cool but i think the fact that my subscription is you know it's maybe like seven pounds a month or eight i don't even know but it's eight pounds a month and then if i don't like a show there's always something else to watch yeah whereas going to the actual is is the discussion films on netflix as well or films on amazon prime i i, th- I think it's as an art form but i think you do have to take into account that films are intended to be seen on the big screen mm-hmm. And going yeah. to see something on the big screen, it does involve paying for it and does involve, you know, having to share the room with other people who are often, you know, cunts. But the film has to be worth it. But I think the TV show has to be worth your time. And I remember someone saying it, someone working in the in the industry said that they actually, when they see a TV series is, is good, they wait until it's at least like three seasons in uh, or maybe even four to see that A, it doesn't get cancelled and B, the quality hasn't dropped and they won't even start watching it before then. Um, and I can understand that because there is so much TV now. And I think there is still a question of you can look at TV and you look at film and it's still a case of the best, you know, of the uh, of each genre, uh, I think, are both worth watching. But, you know, TV has it has its weaknesses. You know, they keep a show going over and over and over like Dexter when it's like the guy's a serial killer and he works for the police. How much longer can this carry on for? And they have to give like plot armor to the main characters so they don't die because you got to keep them going. And, you know, so that's why the whole concept of a red shirt was invented in Star Trek because someone's got to die in the show or nothing exciting happens. So, hey, I'm Ken, I'm an accountant. Well, you're dead. You know, you're going to be dead by the first ad break, you know. So I think you can pick holes in both formats, Um, you know, and and potentially brilliant TV shows like Heroes, Prison Break and Lost, you know, and, and others kind of. That they just they didn't have a, a distinct end in mind, and there were always financial incentives to keep it going to the point where you almost hate it. I mean, I I I, I fucking hate Walking Dead now. I loved the first yeah, few series, and I just can't stand there, it now. There are definitely pros and cons, but I do think that you know the adva- the, the pros for a TV show is that you can really develop characters and you can explore their their arcs in very detailed ways. But the pressure to get the ending right on a TV show is very high, and trying to get that ending properly is I think it's like a hit and a miss I think most of the TV shows I've watched the ending's actually been shit the only ending I think that was perfect was Breaking Bad yeah that was great because what a TV show uh, even even The Wire the, the, fifth, the final series of The Wire is not as good as the previous ones yeah it's difficult Sopranos is very good that did end very well yeah um, Six Feet Under might be the best ending to a TV show ever again I'm not proving my point very well here. I need to think of TV shows that ended badly. Game of Thrones has Walking Dead ended yet? Because that that needs no, to be... it's it's fucking someone needs to end it. That I think, I think Lost Lost was a terrible action. ending. I think Prison Break and Heroes sort of went to went to bits. Yeah. The other argument for film is I do still think there are things that are better seen on the big screen. I think I think if Lawrence Lawrence of Arabia is four hours long, and I think you know, obviously, I'm I'm waiting for the day that I can get to go and see that on the on the on the, the big screen. I only you know because I wasn't a kid, you know, I wasn't even alive when it came out. But that films like that are intended to be seen on the big screen, and they do things that the small screen just can't. And I remember going to see Blade Runner at the cinema for the first time, having, you know, loved it on home video and there's nothing like it. There's absolutely nothing like that big screen experience. I still think that, um, that power in a big screen experience, uh, is still worth, you know, 
hearing some asshole chewing his popcorn five feet away from me. Do you know what I mean? I think your point is after the fact, if you know what I mean. So your the point you're making is that you have a you obviously have a back catalogue of films that you absolutely adore and wish you'd been able to see them on the big screen. But there's also the the argument that there have been films that we've seen on the big screen. We've literally seen some films on the biggest screen in Britain and they've been trash. Like I, I hated Dunkirk. Um, yeah, I mean, I liked it better than the you, IMAX. but I was still disappointed by it. I saw that at the IMAX in in London. Um, I saw the um, I saw Interstellar on the, the IMAX in Glasgow at the Science Centre, which is the biggest screen in Scotland, and I absolutely adored it. So there's obviously that experience there, but the the, the difficulty I have is, is that if I can see, I mean, TVs are getting massive now. I mean, my TV's 49, 49 inches, and it's uh, 8K not 8K, 4K. My housemate's has got a 60-inch TV, 65-inch TV, and it's an 8K. So we, we've got big screens. It's obviously not the size of, like, five double-decker buses, but yeah. screens are getting bigger now, and the picture quality is also very good. And I think for a fil- for me to go to a film, it has to be exceptional, or it has to be something I'm really into. Like, I went and saw those Star Wars sequels, despite me knowing that after halfway through the, um, the last year, I knew that they were going to be shit. Um, but I still went and saw them. You know there are there are very few directors I'll go to the cinema and see the film for. For, for example, I think an interesting um, director is that I've seen a lot of Tarantino's films on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Well, since I've been allowed to watch them, but yeah. um, I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Hateful Eight on the big screen, and I don't think you actually need to watch those films on the big screen. Personally, you get some nice shots in Tarantino films, and maybe some of the action sequences that you've you've got yeah. like the, the shooting the shooting uh shooting up the house scene in Django that might have been really good to see on a cinema screen but i don't know i you think know, hateful eight is an interesting example because he shot it on 70 millimeter in, in and then cabin. um and then it's all indoors and i think i i, I think we've we discussed this before I, I love tarantino but he has certain tendencies which which are confuse me yeah and you know i i, I saw jackie brown on the big screen and it's one of the best films i've ever seen um, but did you need to see it on the big screen? Yeah. Did you need, no? Did you need to see? Cause what what part of Jackie Brown made you think? Oh, I'm really glad I saw it on the big screen because Dan, Tarantino's a dialogue director, hands down. You know, you know what I th- thought was amazing. I don't want to spoil the ending of Jackie Brown for anyone who hasn't seen it. But the final shots where she's driving away, and uh, she's singing along with the song, and you can see that there's an element of sadness, but there's also an element of you know I've got away and I'm going to go and live my life. The the framing of that shot and it gets ever and ever close up. You're watching that on a big screen. It's absolutely magnificent. It is absolutely magnificent to see that on the big screen. And that's just a one person close up. That's not, um, you know, seeing a rocket fly into space. There is something about it in the same way that I look at it this way. I watch a lot more films on video than I than I actually go and see in, in the cinema right now, obviously. And, and and that's okay. I actually think I've had a good year if I go and see two films a month at the cinema yeah. because everyone's got other things going on in their lives and you go to the ones that are going to be special in the same way that, you know, I don't really go to that many gigs anymore. But when, you know, when I did go to gigs, I would have, you know, quite a few albums that I would buy in a year. How many bands do I go and see live? Um, a, a very small minority of, 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 of the music that I'm into is, is worth going to see the live gig. I think it's got to be the, a big show and it's got to be the experience. It's got to be the 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 film that you really love. I mean, I'll, I'll always go try and go and see the next, you know, uh, Ridley Scott film at the cinema. You know, there is something about a way a great director composes a shot on the big screen that's still worth watching, still I, worth going to see. I think I'm actually, I prefer going to the cinema for the sound as opposed to the actual shots because okay there's been some films that i don't regret paying like the 15 pound 60 whatever it is to go and see it at the imax mm-hmm. but i interestingly i think a good example is the best shot in inception you don't need to see on the big screen the best shot in inception is the the final shot with the little totem spinning yeah spoiler because that's what happens but well, the, you, you can't spoil that because it's it's a matter for debate what just happened Oh yeah, maybe maybe it's his wedding <laughs> ring. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. anyway. But for example, there are parts in films that you you should see on the big screen. For example, pretty much every shot in Interstellar, because mm-hmm. um, that film is wonderful. But I think 
if you get good speakers, we've been to some really shit cinemas. Like, I don't think there's actually a good cinema screen in Aberdeen where we watch most of our films where yeah, the, the sound can be good. piss poor in some, in some cinemas. Seeing Interstellar at the IMAX at the Glasgow Science Centre, shout out Glasgow Science Centre. magnificent. Han, yeah. Again, again, Hans Zimmer is, always gets a mention on our show, but fucking other things he does with sound. Again, Apocalypse Now, seeing that at the cinema blows away. And, and obviously the version, the, the first time I saw Apocalypse Now at the cinema, it was a slightly grainy old copy. Yeah, at the um, uh, at the Prince Charles Cinema, and I since went to see the Redux version, and and that's great. And I've got a four K version of that at home, so I can properly use my telly. I don't think, we and it's wonderful, Prince and I love Charles it. Right on Sorry. the big, pardon me. Don't mention Prince Charles right now. Let's let that fucking lie low. That they are in the mud. <laughs> I there. don't think it's not. I don't think it's named after him. But anyway, it, it's uh, the, the Repertory Cinema in Central London, um, and uh, the. Seeing that in the cinema just blows. Away. And again, you're right; it's the sound, the uh, the the spinning fan at the start. Um, you know that that's uh, that started out as helicopters. It is is amazing. I mean, there are some films that I've I've seen at the cinema that I couldn't, I wouldn't want to give up that experience. I think we should start our own cinema chain where everyone just goes to the cinema and watches a different film. This is a very Black Mirror kind of hypothesis, I think. Oh. Am I stoned right now with the idea I've just come up with? Right, so basically you all sit in the cinema and you want to pick a film that you want to see on the big screen and you basically sit in a pod or like those lenses that they have in the episode of Black Mirror where you can like go through your memories and shit and then you just watch a film. So basically you pay you your time. You could do it with VR, couldn't you? Because everyone's experiencing a different thing, you know, directly into their heads. An Oculus Rift or something like that. But anyway, yeah, and then yeah. you watch the film that you've always wanted to see on the big screen rather than, because then you know that the film you're going to see, you've always wanted to see it on the big screen. Like, for example, I think I'd really like to see Rear Window on the big screen because I've only ever watched it. Well, to be fair, I watched it on a relatively big screen. Like, maybe a... Like what a, Hitchcock have I seen on the big screen? Have there been any revivals? I think, but, I, I, think I got to see Vertigo. Example, see, revi- I mean, revivals are easy, aren't they? Because you have already know the film's good. I went to see The Godfather with the big screen and it was re-released. I don't know what it would have been like to go and see that for the first time. But the, I mean, the, for me, there's something about that excitement of picking a film and going to see it and hoping it's yeah. going to be good. It is, like, it is the experience. There's that excitement. It's like, shit, that film's coming out. When, when can you do it? Are you free that day, et cetera? Planning yeah, it yeah. is also very good. Yeah. And very fun. But I think, I think we're actually, when you actually look at the films that are Netflix exclusive and Amazon Prime exclusive, like, for example, One Night in Miami, did I need to see it on a big screen? No. Might no, have been nice and we talked, and we talked be- about this as well, didn't we, about how the future of cinema could actually involve making use of streaming as part of the initial release of a film, yeah. even when the cinemas yeah. are open, right? Yeah. That's um, gonna, that, might, that might save indie cinema. Oh, so fucking smart. <laughs> but mm-hmm. the, the, like, for example, it might have been nice to hear the soundtrack of that film. In a yeah. big screen. Other than that, n- n- not really. I think... You know, I think we actually, I think we actually live in a time where you can get a decent pair of headphones that have really good sound quality, and what you could actually put them into your TV if you don't have surround sound. That's the one thing cinema does have a really good sound quality, and if you don't have surround sound because surround sounds can be quite tricky and expensive, then you're missing out on that. But yeah. there are very few films that I've watched and thought, like on Netflix, for example, I didn't need to see The Irishman at the cinema. I didn't need to see One Night in Miami. There's, I think they they have a happy balance of films that you see in the cinema you are a big spectacle and the ones that have been released exclusively on the small screen haven't been like yeah. haven't thrilled me to the point where i thought yeah i need to see that on the big screen i'll I tell you i'll tell you an example the communal experience of watching a film even if it's you know you're not you know necessarily the world's best film but the fact you watched it with other people makes a difference i mean uh the this is the first film I went to see that had anything you might call like horror tropes to it or slasher movie tropes to it, and that was The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. came out about 1991. It's a, and it hasn't aged well because it's about a psycho nanny taking revenge on a family and all of these terrible, you know, frankly, okay. quite misogynistic themes. But I went to see that at the cinema, and films like that I'd only ever seen on television before because as I first came down to London to go to university, and... The cinema was packed, and when the scares happened, there were there was this bunch of teenage girls about you know four rows in front of me, and they were screaming and and, and things were going up in the air when when the scares happened. And the scares were actually quite well mounted. The guy directed it went on to do L.A. Confidential, Curtis Hansen. So while the film's a bit pulpy, he he, he knows his shit, right? right? And that experience was much much more in every respect than than watching that at home. Uh, so th- th- there's definitely something to be said. I, t- I tell you what will be interesting, right? Two things are going to happen soon where, where we can have, uh, where we can measure this. They're doing a TV series 
I don't know if it's remaking or just continuing the story or in the universe of Lord of the Rings. Yes. I think Amazon's doing that. I think that's going to be very interesting to see how that compares because we we went to see the Lord of the Rings films at the cinema, or at least maybe the second and third one. You might have been a bit little for the first one. No, you um, did. I didn't. You didn't I see any of them at the cinema? I didn't go and see The Return of the King age six. Really? Mm. No, no, no. No, I mean, that makes sense. I saw The Hobbit but, and they were trash. Oh, uh, shite. But the, the first Lord of the Rings films, they were amazing to see on the big screen. And it'll be interesting to see if the experience at home with good televisions, with good sound and big screens measures up to that. And similarly, um, June is coming out this year. Now, we talked about June before. Um, the first time they tried to make a film of June, the whole thing was compromised. The studio fucked David Lynch over, tried to make it. He tried to do a four-hour film. They cut it down to two. It was an ad. It wasn't going to work anyway. This this version that's coming out with Denny Villeneuve, he's going to try and do it, I think in two installments. This is an epic story, which might be too big for the small screen. I think it's a huge, huge story, even though it's epic, and even though they've actually done uh, a TV series versions of Dune, which got the story better. I think the visual experience. It'll be interesting to see how that holds up, and if Denny Villeneuve cracks it. Because that is a, an epic story that you could do as a TV series, and he's chosen to do it as a film so that you can get the big screen and possibly IMAX experience. Um, you know, similar to something like, I mean, I love the Mission Impossible films, and seeing that on, on IMAX was fucking incomparable. Will Dune be a good example of even an epic story based on a book with lots of challenges about the narrative, getting that up on the big screen? If that works, that might be an argument for film. Yeah, that would be an interesting... Um possibly possible turning point but what they have is that they now have a tv show where they can flesh out everything and not condense it yeah. to yeah. 12 to 13 hours of, of film so we'll see That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The podcast was edited and mixed with the help of Audacity, Anchor FM and Zencaster. As usual, anything that sounded good was down to them and anything that sounded crap was down to us. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin McLeod. Dark City is available to buy on digital copy on all the usual services. The director's cut available to buy from YouTube. The Blu-ray version is only available secondhand in the UK. The best account of the unrealised Sandman film project is in the David Hughes book Tales from Development Hell, and YouTube has some of Kevin Smith's best stories about John Peters. Netflix aims to deliver a Sandman TV series by the end of 2021. We are strongly recommended to buy the original graphic novels and to follow Random Sandman on Twitter. So this is me, James Adamson, signing off, and... This is me, James Adamson, signing off. Your next podcast episode will be our regular episode 12 next month. Keep an eye on the socials for any bonus or special episodes we decide to do in future. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell your friends. Until then, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media. And Piers Morgan has hacked more dead girls' phones than Hans Zimmer has Oscars since 1995. Allegedly. For about four episodes, it's just a lot of shagging. It's just shagging. Just shagging. <laughs>